All right, well, y'all ready? This has been a fantastic week, and seriously, I am oddly thankful that that flight was canceled. We had such a great evening last night, y'all. Just know how to take care of your guests. Nobody, nobody throws a party like you guys, like seriously. Um, however, because it wasn't planned ahead of time, uh, we're going a little old school. So, you know, you're going to have to actually look in your Bibles and write your own notes if you care to do that. We didn't do all that for you this time, okay? So you're going to have to get in the Word. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 again, so you can kind of get ready there in a second. But uh, it is a joy, as always, and I'm so thankful uh, to be able to be with you, and God bless you guys. Let's, uh, let's get into this thing. So through the conference, when I had the privilege to get up here and stand in front of you, uh, on Thursday evening, I talked to you about the specifics of church planting from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, where I talked about how Paul planted and Apollos watered and God gave the increase. And, and so obviously, everybody has some work that they can do in the body of Christ, right? And so we understand this chapter continues then on to talk about the judgment seat of Christ, the time when each of our works, whether we bothered to take the time to plant or to water or to do anything for the Lord, will be brought into account, they will be judged. And that's the text I wanna, I wanna take up today. So if you're with me, we'll just jump in in 1 Corinthians 3, we're gonna go from verse 10 down to verse 15. Let me read and you can follow along. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Okay, so in this very familiar passage of Scripture, you guys know the deal, right? Immediately following the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ, we will each and every one of us singularly have to give an account for the work that we have done in the body of Christ. And if you did that work in the body of Christ right, in other words, in the power of the Holy Spirit, well, you'll receive a reward. And that'll be in the form of either gold or silver or precious stones. And if you didn't, if you did whatever you did in the power of your own flesh, well, then the Bible says you will suffer loss. And that'll come in the form of basically the cash equivalent of wood, hay, and stubble, which when put through the fire ultimately mean, well, you receive nothing, right? But it does go on to say, because this doesn't affect your salvation, you're still saved, but you're scorched, you know? It's just a bunch of ashes. And obviously, this great event that we put on every year, the Mission Focus Conference, is all about fine-tuning your focus so you will work for the Lord in the right way and ultimately earn the rewards for eternity that are described in this passage of Scripture. And so, I, you know, I realize that today is January 2nd and it's the start of a new year and it would kind of be a downer for me just to come in here and start yelling about God's judgment 
and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, being the positive thinker that I am, I thought I'd just spin it a different way and let us come at it, right? In a little bit of a more positive perspective, I think we can actually pull that off. And today what I wanna do is just do a deeper dive with you specifically on the one reward that's listed first, and that's gold. I want you to better understand what God is talking about when he says you can earn gold at the judgment seat of Christ. And so the question would be, what do I need to do specifically so that I can earn gold or silver or precious stones, not really our subject this morning? Or in other words, what should I be prioritizing in my life now in 2022 to steer my life in that direction? What do gold and silver and precious stones really represent in the scriptures? So we're gonna talk about gold. And actually, this has been a very interesting study. Gold is a very interesting subject. It's a very interesting element. In fact, gold is the most precious thing down here on earth, and as such, it represents the most precious thing up there in heaven. Maybe you've already heard it said or taught in the past that gold represents deity, the very person of God. But as I've thought that through, as it's been taught to me over the years, I thought to myself, okay, that sounds good, and I know why they say that, and we'll get into that in a second. How exactly do I do something in the body of Christ after salvation to earn a reward that's the cash equivalent of deity? I mean, it's a little bit unclear to me when I think about what exactly do I have to do to earn a reward that represents deity? Well, you guys are Bible students, and if you are, that means that you know that physical things on earth picture spiritual things in heaven, right? Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. And since gold is mentioned well over 400 times in the Bible, there has to be some kind of a significant spiritual lesson associated with it. And since it's one of the three things that we can earn at the judgment seat of Christ, I say we need to know more about it and what it is specifically that we can do so that we can earn it. I mean, don't you think that'd be helpful to you? Wouldn't it be good if you just knew in order to get in on the gold or the silver or the precious stones, what are the things that I should really be doing so that when that day comes, I'm not looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ of like, oh man, I know I'm gonna get toasted, but you think, man, this is actually the time where the Lord will reward the good things that I've done in the power of his spirit. I think that's a good way to look at it. So if you'll allow me for just a second, I just wanna pray and then we'll get, into the, we'll get into the details. So Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now and we look at this precious subject, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will be honored, that you will be glorified, and that most of all, as always, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. I pray that I'll get out of your way and your word will speak clearly and these dear brothers and sisters will understand better how to lay out their lives and the path and the steps they need to take so that they know that they are building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, gold and silver and precious stones. We pray in Christ's name, amen. 
So I have an outline and I have points and I'll say it that way because that's how I'm geared to say it. You can write it down or not write it down as you see fit. But the first point, if you're interested, I'm calling the origin of gold. Where does gold come from? Now, you know, I did what anybody would do. You know, you do a little Google search and you start figuring out where do people think gold came from and that sort of thing. And you'd be shocked. I was shocked when I started digging into this thing. Like, it is kind of crazy. According to the experts, whatever that means. Since gold is a heavy metal, they would expect it to be closer to the Earth's core and not found near the surface where we actually find it. Therefore, scientists postulate that gold came from outer space. I mean, legitimately, you go home and search it. They say it came from outer space. It was actually formed inside of stars and when the stars exploded into supernovas, asteroids carried gold to the Earth in the early years of the Earth's formation. I'm not making this up. This is, this is what they actually think. But it, I find it interesting because even when they're wrong, and they're wrong, uh, there's always something to it and the Lord has always got something in there. So whether they would admit it or not, even in their own minds, gold represents a link in the minds of the scientists that there's something heavenly associated with it. Isn't that interesting? It's connected to stars, outer space, space travel. It's pretty interesting. But as so frequently is the case, science is wrong. That's not where gold came from. Gold came from God. And so we see the very first mention of gold in the Bible is in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where it says, the name of the first is Pison. We're talking about the rivers that flowed. The name of the first is Pison. That, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There's bdellium and the onyx stone. So in Genesis chapter 2, we have the description of the earth as God created it. And God gave gold in the earth from the beginning, before sin, and he called it good. Now that's significant. It's connected with the Garden of Eden, where Adam was first created from the dust of the earth, right, from the ground, and Adam once created was also called good. And so since God created gold and identified its location and identified its goodness, well, there has to be a particular use for gold. And we're all ready to point number two. We're, we're moving right along. Our, my second point in this outline is the usage of gold. We had the origin. Now we're going to look at gold's usage, the usage of gold. Now, gold is an amazing element. It really is. It can be used in many different useful applications. Its primary use is in currency, money, coins, buying power. Its second most frequent use is for jewelry, decoration, right, adorning. Uh, it's also a good conductor of electricity, so it's used in electronics, it's used in medicine, it's used in religion, it can be woven into clothing, it can be made into an edible substance, right, gold leaf, an edible substance, in solution, Gold gives off the color red, like blood. 
And it's always associated with tremendous wealth and opulence. Think Donald Trump's New York City apartment or something like that. But in the Bible, 489 times, overwhelmingly, most all of the uses of gold, the primary use of gold is in the tabernacle. And that's where we're gonna camp here for a second. And this is gonna be really important because the tabernacle is such an important item in the life of the nation of Israel because the tabernacle represents the very place where God would come down and visit with Israel. And really, if you dive into the reason why people have historically said that gold is associated with deity, is for this very reason, because all of these items that make up the furnishings inside the tabernacle that are, that are made of or overlaid with gold, right, are associated with our interaction with God. And so that's where they get that, I get that. I also want to bring to your attention that the Feast of Tabernacles, right, that particular Feast of Israel, it marks the time of both the first and the second advents of Jesus Christ, the time where God himself bodily comes to earth to tabernacle, to dwell with man. So that tabernacle, which eventually becomes the temple, well, that's a very special place. And again, remembering that the, the physical always pictures the spiritual, so we know the earthly tabernacle pictures the heavenly tabernacle. We see that in several places in the book of Hebrews. Let me just give you Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 5 where it says, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for See, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And you know the story. You know Moses goes up into Mount Sinai and God tells him that he's to go down and he's to make this tabernacle. And he gives him all the details of how he's going to construct this tabernacle. But the way that Moses got the pattern was God gave him a glimpse of the heavenly tabernacle. And he said, you see that one? Yeah, I see that one. Okay, now go down and build you one just like it. So the earthly tabernacle is a picture of a heavenly one that is literal and exists. And so when God did that, he called his people to use gold to make many of the tabernacle furnishings. Once you enter into that section that's called the holy place, then you're gonna see three pieces of furnishings, right? On the left side as you enter is gonna be the candlestick which gives off the light for that room, representing the very Holy Spirit of God. On the right side of that area as you enter into that holy place is gonna be the table of showbread, which are those 12 loaves of bread arranged six, six, and six, representing God's very word as the light of God's spirit illuminates the bread of God's word. And then right front and center as you enter that holy place is this altar of incense, which then that incense being burned and the, and the smoke going up represents the very prayers of the saints. All of these made with gold. And when the high priest once in a year and he could go past the veil and he could enter into the very holy of holies, what is the one thing that's there? It's the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the cherubim all made of gold. And this Ark of the Covenant and that mercy seat is the very place 
where God would come down once a year and speak with the high priest on the day of atonement. And all these things represent man's direct personnel interaction with God himself. So when God gave the plans to build that tabernacle, he required that it be built with much gold. But why? Why gold? I mean, it must have some special value to God. So that's our third point of study today, the value of gold. Let's talk a little bit about the value of gold. So gold we know here on earth, right? It's a precious metal. It's a precious metal because it's rare, right? That gives it a high value. If you were to look it up, I looked it up last night. The current going rate for gold is $1,829 an ounce. That's what it'll cost you to get an ounce of gold today. But what's the real value of gold to God? Well, since it's obviously connected to God and his deity at some level, and in the building of the one location where he designed to meet with his creation specifically and personally, gold is valuable because of its association with worship. And that's what we're gonna talk about, worship. I find that in the body of Christ that there is a low understanding of what worship is really all about. We love to come and we love to praise his name and, and lift him up in song and in worship and that's beautiful and that's wonderful and it's legitimate. But is that the totality of worship really? And, and I want us to really get into this idea because it's so important to God. The tabernacle itself was built for a specific purpose and that purpose was so that God's people could worship him. It was the place where and it was the model how man was to approach unto God. And since God is holy and man is sinful, the path to God through the tabernacle takes you past the brazen altar where the sacrifice is made for sin to the brass laver where the washing of those things would come off of you before you enter into that holy place with those things that I already described and then once in a year the high priest into the most holy place. And that maps out for us the direction and the steps that we must take as we approach unto God as well. That high priest was allowed only once a year behind the veil and he had to take great care to wash and to clothe himself properly and all those details you know, of his, of his vestments and all these things before he went in there or else he would die. You can see for reference on your own Exodus 28, 31 to 36, where all of that is described for you. Now we know that God desires worship from all his creation, right? So very simply, like Psalm 19 says in verse number one, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Psalm 66 verse four says, all the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name, Selah. But especially, God desires that worship from the crown of his very creation, from man. And of course, all through the scriptures, but let me just read to you Psalm 22, 
and verse 27 where it says, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. So what is worship? Certainly it's more than just singing songs. If you went into the old Webster's Dictionary, that 1828 dictionary, a lot of people like to use that, he'll say that worship is defined as to adore, to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration. If you just get into the Bible and cross-reference how the word is used and how the King James translators decided to translate it in different ways in different locations, Throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word worship is also translated at times as bow down, make obeisance to. In other words, make oneself lower than the thing being reverenced. That's the picture, right? So then what exactly qualifies as worship before God? Well, let's go to the very first mention. That's how we study the Bible, right? So the first mention of the word worship, a lot of you already know this, is in Genesis 22 and verse number five, where Abraham is about to go and sacrifice his only son, Isaac, right? In obedience to God's command. And so in Genesis 22, five, we read, Abraham said to his young men, abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and, and come again to you. And when Abraham said that to all his servants that were there with him, and he was about to go up with Isaac, Abraham was the only guy in the crowd that knew what he really was going to do. Nobody knew. Isaac didn't know. Nobody knew exactly what his plans were and what he was really going to carry out. And when he communicated to the others to wait here, Isaac and I, we're going to go up in the mountain and we're going to worship. Now, you realize this comes on the heels of Abraham finally receiving that one begotten son, the promise, after all those years of barrenness and childlessness. And he finally gets this boy, and the boy is starting to grow up as a young man. And God said, I want him back. Go up there and kill him. And Abraham says, we're going to worship. We're going to worship. So as a result, biblical worship must include an element of sacrifice, amen? It has to include an element of sacrifice. In other words, I might define it like this. Worship is anything you do to obey, honor, and exalt God, which requires your personal sacrifice to do so. Can I say that again? Worship is anything you do to obey, honor, and exalt God, which requires your personal sacrifice to do so. Can I present to you that, at least for me, it's no sacrifice to come to church, to sit comfortably with like-minded believers and climate control and sing songs about the goodness of God. That's fun. But I don't want to discount it. I mean, singing clearly is associated with worship, most certainly, and maybe even exclusively, when and only when that song and the words are the communication of your soul, of your very life, when you're singing words that really mean something because they represent how you actually live. It's your direct communication with God. 
Let me frame it to you this way. Worship is anything that you do that causes God to show up. Doesn't it say in Psalm 22 and verse three, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. The praises of Israel caused God to show up. Now let's go back to the tabernacle. All that work in building the tabernacle was a long extended effort of worship. Why? Because at the end, God showed up, right? He showed up in the Holy of Holies over the mercy seat. And I just want to say that the very place that he showed up was called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. If you want to worship the Lord, you have to do it in holiness. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. You guys are familiar with 1 John chapter 1 where it says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, right? If, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. If you're going to walk with the Lord, you have to do it in holiness because he's holy. And can I tell you, living a life of holiness before the Lord, well, that's a sacrifice, it's a huge sacrifice, amen? It means you have to say no to the things that you want so that you can say yes to the Lord. You know what's also interesting? That word holiness is also translated by the King James translators in some places as sanctuary. Sanctuary. What's a sanctuary? Well, it's a place where God lives. And that high priest that led the worship of the Israelites wore a breastplate made of gold on his chest and it, on it, it had the inscription, holiness to the Lord in Exodus 28, 36. So now that we understand the usage and the value of gold, let's, let's clear off a space and see how we can get some, right? Because... Once we understand its value and its usage and how God set it up and all of these things, now what really matters is, how do I need to arrange my life? How am I gonna begin to live 2022 differently if necessary so that I can be confident when that judgment day comes? There's gold waiting for me. So my last point, point number four, I'm calling the collection of gold. The collection. Now we know that people all over the world these days, right? They'll compromise all their moral standards to collect more gold here and now. And it's sad, right? First Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil. And so all these money-grubbing, wealth-pursuing people, worldly people of this world, they'll do anything and everything and lie and cheat and steal and step on others so that they can gather more for themselves. And that's the standard you know, operating procedure in this world today. We understand that. But for us, spiritually speaking, what exactly should I be doing in my life now to ensure that I get to earn some gold at the judgment seat of Christ? I mean, that's what I want to know, right? What is God looking at in my life concerning worship that will determine whether I'm rewarded with gold or not? Well, since worship is much more than just singing songs of praise, it's all the things that you do sacrificially to honor and to exalt God, 
I want us to look at three specific ways that you can sacrifice to earn gold. Because really, if gold is about worship and if worship is about sacrifice, we have to look at the specific ways of sacrifice that translate into worship and therefore into gold. And the first one is to sacrifice your treasure. This is actually very interesting and very important. Sacrifice your treasure. Remember, much of that tabernacle was made with gold. And remember, when they were commanded to do so, they had already left Egypt, they had already crossed the Red Sea, they had already moved down to Sinai. Moses goes up in the mount, he eventually comes down, and he tells the children of Israel, all right, God told us we're gonna build a tabernacle and we're gonna build it out of all these materials. Where do you suppose they got all the gold to make all the stuff in the tabernacle? They got it from God's people. That's where they got it, they got it from God's people. They're in the middle of a desert. They got it from God's people. So we read in Exodus chapter 35 and verse number five, where Moses leads them saying, take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord. Whosoever is a willing heart, let him bring it an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass. Go a little further down in that chapter, starting in verse number 21, it says, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up and everyone whom his spirit made willing, they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation and for all his service and for the holy garments. And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing hearted and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets, all jewels of gold. And every man that had offered, offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. And so you see this is a free will offering and the Lord is asking his people to give to build this thing called the tabernacle that will represent the very place and the manner in which God can meet with them. Go into the next chapter, Exodus 36, verse number five. They spake unto Moses, saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work, which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. Imagine that. For the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it, and too much. Don't happen that often anymore these days, does it? A free will offering of gold to melt down for the building of the tabernacle. Now let's look at a New Testament application of that. New Testament free will giving to the Lord as a result, becomes an act of worship. It is something that you do that pleases the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, one of the greatest chapters in all the New Testament on giving, right? Grace of giving, 2 Corinthians 8. We're gonna start first, verse number one. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality, for to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. Oh my, another free will offering. Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. So it was God's will for them to do it, but it was their will and desire and pleasure to do it as well. 
And you say, well, it's my desire and pleasure to do it as well also. Well, good for you. Let's read down to verse number 11. Now, therefore, perform the doing of it. (laughs) It's great that you think it's a good idea. How about you actually do it? That as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which you have. For if there be first a willing mind, it's accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. You say, well, I don't really have much. Well, you're probably not in deep poverty as bad as the Macedonian churches. And you say, well, I only have this much. Well, praise the Lord. God's only looking at what you have. You see, it always goes back to this kind of thing. God's not nearly as interested in how much you give as he is interested in how much you keep. That's the kind of thing he's looking for. And for you to be able to participate in this kind of an offering, it is a sacrifice. There's no question about it. You could be using it for something else, but you're choosing to give it away freely of your own will, desiring to help build the ministry and the work of the Lord. And by the way, lest you forget, your free will giving directly, proportionately impacts what you'll receive. The next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, you couldn't make it any clearer. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly, okay, shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully, well, he gets to reap bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. Feel no pressure. Do as you like. But just know, sparingly, sparingly, bountifully, bountifully. Right? So let him give, not grudgingly, not of necessity. God loveth a cheerful giver. Be cheerful. Be free. Be joyful. Enjoy. And don't forget what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, where he said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves not break through nor steal. And you can do this because giving is worship, and worship is is gold. You know, you've heard it said, you can't take it with you when you die. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, you know, that kind of thing. But what can you do now to build gold on this foundation of your salvation, Jesus Christ in your life? Well, sacrifice your treasure for the building of the New Testament temple, tabernacle, the church. The second thing that you can do is to sacrifice your talents. We're going to go back to the tabernacle in the wilderness now when God told Moses what to do. He told him to get others to help. Of course, he wasn't going to be able to do it all himself, and so he said, get some other guys to help. What kind of a person was it that was specifically told to help build the tabernacle? Well, we have revelation on that. Back in Exodus chapter 31, verse number 2, it says this. See, I have called by name, there's a guy named Bezalel. I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. Why? To devise cunning works to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in cutting of stones to set them and in carving of timber and to work in all manner of workmanship. 
You see, God's spirit was working through this man, Bezalel, and by the way, a team of men with him, right, to build the tabernacle. They were craftsmen. Now, I want you to think about this tabernacle in the wilderness for just a second because sometimes we read those stories and we romanticize it a little bit, but this tabernacle in the wilderness was just a giant tent. It was portable. It was temporary, right? And so, I don't know if you ever really thought about it, but have you ever thought about literally how much work it would have required not just to create it the first time, but to set that thing up and then to tear it back down and then to transport it and to do it again and to set it back up and to camp for a while and tear it back down and to transport it and to come back again. Every single time that stinking pillar of fire and cloud decided to move, up. Oh, Time to pack up again, and we pack it all up. And different guys had different responsibilities in this work. In fact, you go through the scriptures and you see the sons of Levi. There are three main sons of Levi, and they have specific assignments to the care of the tabernacle. There's Kohath, who had the ark and the table and the candlestick and the altars and the vessel and the hangings. And there's Gershon, who had the tabernacle and the tent and the covering and the hangings and the curtain and the cords. And there's Merari, who had the boards and the bars and the pillars and the sockets and the vessels. And each of those team leaders had teams of people working with them to make sure they're tearing down and packing up and transporting and setting up again the thing that they had responsibility over. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, God would come down, and the glory would come down, and he would encamp, and he would talk to Aaron, and Aaron would be in with him, and then Aaron would come out and communicate with the people all the things that God said. And I promise you that that day was a glorious day. But if all those people didn't do all that work and set everything up just right and all the procedures were not carried out just right, God never would have showed up. He never would have showed up. There's a lot of mundane, tedious, detailed, grinding out, not fun work that has to be done just so that you can get the setup right, so that every once in a while you have the ah moment <laughs> and every bit of that work is sacrifice and every bit of that work is worship. It's so impressive for us as guests to come here for Mission Focus. You guys are running around. I mean, I walked in here on Thursday morning, because Wednesday I was in Lee's Summit, Thursday morning, and you know, just got in and I had my stuff, and I mean, I was just accosted by servants asking me to do this and can get you this and let me get you your packet and your free sweatshirt and all this stuff was coming and going and notes and here and there and what can I do for you? And you guys got, you know, people everywhere doing all this stuff, and I'm telling y'all, I want you to know that's worship. That's worship. 
All that hard work, all that tedious daily grinding out a responsibility of something that doesn't seem like nothing, if it doesn't all come together, you never get the moment that is the crescendo of mission focus, for example. That's important. Without all that stuff, it's not happening. God doesn't come down. God values that sacrifice. That's gold. Oh, and by the way, we are New Testament priests before God today, right? We have no physical inheritance. God himself is our inheritance, right? Just like the Old Testament priesthood. We can go directly to God now, right? The veil is torn, right? And you know that the Old Testament temple is a picture, that tabernacle pictures the local church. We saw back in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9 that it says, ye are God's building, right? You can go a little further down in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, right? So we all, like Bezalel, need to be filled with God's Holy Spirit and do the work that he's gifted us, each and every one of us, to do in the building up of the temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ. What are those tedious daily structures that you set up in your lives to allow the Lord to show up gloriously every once in a while? It don't don't happen every day, but you continue the discipline day after day Because that work, that that discipline that you have, it's not always glorious, but it is necessary. And it is a sacrifice for you because you are choosing to not be doing other things that you might prefer. That work, that sacrifice of your talents, that's worship. Don't let anybody tell you different. That's worship. There's one last thing, and and I, and I left it for last on purpose, and that's to sacrifice your time. And you might have saw it coming because I said the treasure and I said the talents and, and the time starts with a T and those go together a lot. But I want you to really think about this for a second because we're not quite done yet and it's as important. You're, you guys in this room are probably the ones who do the lion's share of the work helping to build the tabernacle and all and, and praise God for you, I really mean that. But can I just ask you, to ask yourself, why do you do it? Why do you keep that structure in your life? Is it so that you can spend personal time with God in the word, in prayer, in singing, in fellowship, walking with him, communion? Do you actually do that? Do you do the work so that you can just Be with the Lord? Or do you do your job at church out of some sense of duty and get so burdened by it that you actually never enjoy the personal presence of God in your life? Back in Exodus chapter 24, I want you to notice what the Lord said to Moses in verse number 12. Exodus 24, 12. If you take no notes at all, write down that verse and go read it. The Lord said unto Moses, come up to me into the mount and be there. 
and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teachest them. God called Moses first and foremost to come up on the mount and just be there. Oh yeah, I got stuff for you to do. I'm gonna give you tablets, I'm gonna give you stones, you're gonna go teach some people, okay. But first, let's just spend some time together. Sure, you go to church. But are you really there with the Lord? Sure, you read your Bible. But are you really there with the Lord when you do? I mean, we know from Revelation 4.11 that God created man and everything for his pleasure. We know that God made Adam in the very beginning among several reasons, but most certainly Genesis 3.8, just to spend time walking with him in the cool of the day. Well, what about Jesus Christ? What did he do? Jesus Christ called specific men to come and to follow him, but why? Why did he call men to specifically follow him? Mark chapter three, verse number 13, and he goeth up into a mount and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him, and he ordained 12, listen, that they should be with him. That they should be with him. Oh, and that he might send them forth to preach. Yeah, eventually I'll have some stuff for you to do. But I'm calling you 12 to come up into the mount and for a while, it's just us. We're just gonna spend some time together. And eventually, there'll be stuff to do and I'll send you out and you'll have a job to do. And you know, we're really good about the job part, right? We're really good about making sure we do what we need to do. But are we just spending time with him? Or are you so covered up in your schedules and are you booked so tight that you gotta microwave your Pop-Tarts, you can't even take the time to toast them? I mean, you're just so busy. (laughs) Jesus chose 12 men first just to be with him. He wants that with you. And then so they would preach. That's what he wants. He wants to spend time together. Every dad knows that. You have your kids as they're growing up, you you wanna teach them responsibility and give them chores and stuff to do and whatever, and you you want them to be responsible when you leave them alone or whatever, but in the meantime, man, there's never a time that a dad thinks that he or you are too old to just hang out together. Just spend some time with me, man. If my kids would just want to spend more time with me, they would find I would want to do more stuff for them. That's true of everybody, right? Which, by the way, is why holiness is so important because if you're gonna hang with the Lord, can't have darkness. That's true worship. That's true worship. That's why coming together and worshiping him in song, it actually is worship because hopefully you're just being with him, see? And if you do that with that attitude, he'll reward you gold, gold. Your life in 1 Corinthians chapter three in this little passage is compared to a building project for eternity. You're currently building upon a foundation of Jesus Christ in your life, but what are you building? That's the real question. If you wanna build with gold, you're gonna have to sacrifice 
personal resources that God left in your stewardship as an act of worship back to him. You're gonna sacrifice your treasure, you're gonna sacrifice your talent, and you're gonna sacrifice your time, and that pleases God. And you cannot outgive God, he will reward you accordingly. And we didn't have time, but let me just mention it to you for your own study. If you wanna build with silver, you're gonna need to invest in the word of God, because in my opinion, Silver represents the word of God. I've in the past heard it talked about the price of redemption, but similar to deity, what exactly do I do in my life in the body to earn the price of redemption? That seems odd to me how I could even pull that off. But Psalm 12, 6 says, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth. If you want to build with precious stones, well, you're going to have to invest your life in your witness. It's for souls of men, Proverbs 31 says, who can find a virtuous woman? She's compared with her price far above rubies. So doesn't it make sense that gold, silver, and precious stones represent worship, the word, and your witness? Doesn't it make sense that the only things that are eternal our God, his word, and the souls of men. Doesn't it make sense that those are the things that are represented in the three elements and ways that you can be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ? Invest your lives in those things in 2022. And whether he comes sooner or later, you don't have to fear the judgment seat. You can look forward to it with joy, anxiously awaiting his appearing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will take this word and encourage these brothers and sisters and, and challenge them where they need to be challenged. And Lord, if there's somebody who heard this message who, who has darkness in their life, that, that they would repent of that and that they would get holy and they would walk right and move forward. But God, thank you for the description of the gold and the worship in the tabernacle and the things that you set up as the picture so we can learn spiritual truths. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would all live daily lives of worship unto you, which means daily lives of sacrifice. And understand that while we do some of the mundane details, that that is worship, and yet we take time to make sure that we are just hanging with you. Because you want that, and we want that. And it all works together. Lord, we can't wait for the day that you call time on this. Selfishly, I can't wait. I want to be with you. I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of fighting the devil. But until that day, I want to make you real in my life now. So get the glory, I pray in Jesus' name.